If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Welcome to the Truth In My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Hello. Today, we have Sonia interviewing John about textual criticism. This is the field of study through which we can know the original text of the New Testament. We are continuing from the previous episode today. This is not the only apologist that I've heard make this claim. More than one has made this claim that that the all all the prophets were not a scroll, so you just have to give the name of the scroll at the top, like you said about encyclopedias. Interestingly, they never actually give a primary source proof that there was such a convention at all. They just say it. Sometimes they might cite each other, but you get this this big circular thing where. One scholar cites another one saying it, who cites another one saying it, who cites another one saying it, who might cite the first one saying it. But none of them gives objective evidence that they ever did, that Jews, ancient Jews ever did that. And no wonder they don't. It is absolutely not true. It cannot be true. Why cannot it be true? Because the Jews never kept all the prophets on a single scroll, as this apologist said. They couldn't do so. There was an upper limit to the size of scrolls that made, to make them manageable. The upper limit to the size of a scroll was about 32 to 35 feet long. And do you have a primary source for that fact? I have sources for that. They're cited in Immanuel Tov, Textual Criticism of the Old Testament. The Great Isaiah Scroll that was found at the Dead Sea, the most notable of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, designated 1Q Isa A, it was about 24 feet long. Okay, So it took 24 feet of scrolls to put the book of Isaiah on it. There's no room to put Jeremiah on it as well. The Greek minor prophet scroll found at, at Nahal Hever, designated Eid Hev 12 Greek. It's about 34 meters long, so it's near the upper length limit for scrolls. So if you have all the minor prophets and, and you fill the maximum possible scroll size with just the minor prophets, how can you possibly put all the, all the prophets onto one, one scroll. You can't do it. So you never have Isaiah and Malachi on the same scroll. And if some, some weird scribe did it, if he wrote Isaiah, say, oh, I got a few feet over, let's that on Malachi, it certainly wouldn't be the normal thing. It's not something people would recognize. So no, you would never have a quote from Malachi and say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's on the scroll of all the prophets and we'll call that Isaiah. So no, no, absolutely not. There is no way the Jews could have kept all of the prophets on a single scroll. And you'd hope that apologists would do their homework before they would say such a thing. Are there any other attempted explanations? Yes, and, and they're quite similar. They, they appeal to some of them to another putative Jewish copying convention. And then they have a chutzpah to say that the problem is with those who point out the obvious error. James White, for example, he says... Quote, the argument that it is an error is simply one of ignorance of the common forms of citation at the time of the writing of the New Testament. So yeah. what is this putative Jewish copying convention? Well, the information officer from that creation ministry we mentioned earlier explains, because this person also appeals to that dodge, 
quote, it was standard Jewish practice to, to string more than one prophet together and only cite the one that was making the main point, unquote. Now you'll hear this from a lot of apologists. Another one puts it this way, quote, it was an accepted practice to list the prophet who was making the main point, unquote. So do you consider that to be more acceptable than the earlier explanations? Well, it's still wrong anyway. And also, how do they know it was standard Jewish practice to do that? Well, that's a good question. It's a good question considering how ubiquitous this dodge is. You'll hear that this was common forms of citation, standard Jewish practice, accepted practice, common practice. With such bold statements, we can surely expect to see copious actual documentation, as you asked, to prove that there was such a common, standard, accepted practice. But we don't. We absolutely do not. There was no such practice. Once again, what you have is is apologists making the claim, citing one another doing it, and you can run down a lot of rabbit trails trying to find an actual source. But they just quote each other, which is kind of surprising, considering that this practice was so supposedly common, except that... Why would an apologist say this without evidence to back it up? You need to do your homework. I'm sure they're saying in good faith. They have heard it from others. And so they're repeating it. But the reality is you need to do your homework like we did with the, the birth date of Jesus. So I went through a lot of these different apologists trying to find source material, trying to find some kind of documentation. And I finally found one, one apologist who gave one source. And, and this was a book by a certain Z.H. Chages called The Student's Guide to the Talmud, which happily I had in my collection. And I checked it out. And it does relate to a rather bizarre rabbinic practice. And understand, these are commentaries long after the New Testament. But it was a, a practice of equating people who shared characteristics. They said, like, Ezra is this guy because they have this in common. But they never did it in ascribing quotes. Even when they said, this guy is that guy, they would still ascribe the quotes properly. they say, this guy is that guy, because Isaiah says so-and-so about this guy, and Jeremiah says so-and-so about that guy, that kind of thing. They were always very careful to maintain the right speaker and the, the quotation ascribed to the right speaker. So this is the only source you ever have offered to prove this supposedly common practice, and it doesn't do it. So this other dodge to try to get around an error that you've allowed to be inserted in the Bible because of mainstream textual criticism, that one doesn't work either. Are there any other attempts to get out of this? There is. There's there's one more that I found, and that's to appeal to the collection order, the order of the books in the Jewish canon. And the claim is then made that, quote, in the Jewish way of labeling things, you call a book by its first few words, and you call a collection of books by the first book in that collection. You think this works? Well, but you, we just established that Isaiah and Malachi couldn't be on the same scroll anyway. Yes, they would say, what well, does that have to be on the same scroll? It's the same collection. Maybe your collection is like three scrolls long or five scrolls long, but you know, this is scroll one, this is scroll two, this is scroll three. But here, here's a couple of problems. <laughs> if you're going to say that, well, Mark said, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, because of the 
collection order. He was the first book in the prophets, and so you just call that Isaiah, and anything from the prophets goes there. The first problem with that is Isaiah was not considered the first book. If you look at the Jewish arrangement of the canon, Joshua was considered the first book of the prophets. We class Joshua as a uh, historical book, but they, they, uh, they divide the canon into three sections. The Torah, it's the books of the law, the five books of Moses, sometimes called the Pentateuch. You have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the law, the prophets, and the writings, laws, Torah, prophets is Nevi'im in Hebrew, and the writings are Ketuvim. So that's where you get the Tanakh from. It's, it's an abbreviation for Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. But in the Nevi'im, the prophets, Joshua was put there as the first. Second problem is that we see in Josephus against Appian 1.8, we see in the New Testament itself, for example, Luke 24.44, a possibly Philo and Devita Contemplativa 3.25, all of them indicate that in the first century AD, the second division of the Old Testament was referred to by the title, The Prophets. It was just called the prophets, exactly as you see in the real reading of Mark 1-2. It was not called by the name of the first book in the collection. And a third and perhaps most telling problem with this dodge, when New Testament writers attribute Old Testament quotes, they always attribute it to the correct author. Matthew quotes from Old Testament writings 11 times in narrative commentary. And out of these, one is from Jeremiah, and he attributes it to Jeremiah. Four from Isaiah, and he attributes them to Isaiah. Six of them are attributed to the prophets. And again, we see the same practice in Josephus, possibly in Philo, Philo, and elsewhere in the New Testament. Isaiah is never used by Matthew as a designation for the books of the prophets as a whole, nor by Mark, nor by Luke, nor by John, nor by Paul, nor by anybody. For this dodge to work, for example, Matthew would have to attribute each Old Testament quote from the prophets to Isaiah, or Mark would have to do that. If Mark attributes these quotes in Mark 1 to Isaiah, even though it's not by Isaiah because that's the, the first book of the collection, then he should do that every time he quotes from the prophets in the Old Testament. And he doesn't do that. Of course he doesn't do that. Well, it seems to me like it, it would actually be easier than trying all these dodges. Why don't you just not accept Griesbach's canons? Well, this is the thing. You'd, again, you'd have to do your homework. I don't think any of these apologists even have, know who Griesbach is, know anything about the development of New Testament textual criticism. They just learn the party line and they just accept it without question. But let me sum up what we've seen at this point then, on, on this section. Here are the options if you accept mainstream textual criticism and you believe, against all the evidence, that Mark wrote as it is written in Isaiah the prophet in Mark 1-2. These are your options. You can abandon inerrancy. That's, that's one option. And most of them have already done that. Or your other option is to invent claims about Jewish copying conventions out of whole cloth. And then these, these claims are passed on and, and other people hear them and pass them on in good faith. But they were made up out of whole cloth at some point and appeal to these supposed conventions, even though by doing that, you're still ending up with errors in the text. So I think it seems pretty clear now. You can have mainstream textual criticism, or you can have inerrancy, but not both. Not both. Unfortunately, we don't need to choose because mainstream textual criticism, as we've already seen, 
is is wrong. It's it's based on wrong presuppositions. All of the facts disproven. But the problem is, so few Christians know about this, and just by default accept mainstream textual criticism by using Bibles based on the the critical, the Nestle Allon text. Uh, you know, I I have to wonder. May, maybe some Christians actually don't know their Bible well enough and wouldn't even notice the error, like in Mark one two. And I get the feeling that some Christians choose their Bible because they think, for example, the the NIV is easier to read than the New King James Version. I, th- I think you're right on both of those points. To address the second one first, perhaps the NIV is easier to read. Living Bible might be easier to read than the, than the NIV, so why not go to that? Good News Bible might be easier than the Living Bible. Why not go to that? Because at some point, you're going to have to decide what degree of accuracy you actually want. If you believe the Bible is the Word of God, do you want to read a translation that conveys into English as close as possible what is said in the original languages? Or do you want someone to pre-digest it for you, decide what they think it means, and write that down in an easy-to-understand fashion, which may be wrong? And then some of these people say that, sorry, they will go to university. They want to get good jobs to make good money. They may go into a difficult subject like engineering. And I can tell you, those textbooks are not easy to understand. The work is not easy to understand. But they put in the effort because they want the degree so that they can have a good job. And I would ask, if you're willing to put in that effort to understand things, to get a degree and get a good job, don't you want to put in effort, if needed, to understand the Word of God as well as possible? I would think so. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. But please join us for the next part tomorrow. Same time and same place. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.